Hello and welcome to this week's Market Thinkers Discussion. Uh, along with Drew Meredith, my business partner, we have Andrew Kenobi from uh, Franklin Templeton. First Market Thinkers series, why, why are we running this series? Essentially, it's about bringing thinkers of the industry um, to your doorstep or, or your lounge room or wherever your computer is. Uh, essentially, a lot of clients see uh, a line in their portfolio and it has a name, but it's not really connected to a person or a strategy. All they see is a unit price. So we're, we're doing a series of these until the end of the year. And um, this one will be on, on bonds and Andrew is our guest. Uh, a little bit about Waddle Partners for the people that don't know who we are. Drew and I run a business out of, out of Melbourne called uh, Waddle Partners. It is got origins back to 1973, where it was founded by a one Austin Donnelly. Uh, Austin, we think, was the first fee-for-service independent firm, and we very much are still fee-for-service independent um, some nearly 50 years later. Uh, in this session, we have Andrew Kenobi. Uh, he manages the Franklin Templeton Australia Absolute Return Bond Fund. That's a, that's a mouthful, Andrew. Um, <laughs> typically, bonds considered uh, a relatively boring part of port portfolios and something that we've found, Drew and I have found over the journey that a lot of people do not understand completely. They think about bonds as just traditional term deposits, but there's a, there's a lot more to do with bonds. And today we're trying to demystify what bonds are and, and essentially how Andrew manages money. A little bit about this session uh, and, and how it'll be run. Drew, we'll first talk about uh, the Franklin Templeton Absolute Return Bond Fund and why we include it as within our model and what elements we, we like and we think are appropriate to have an allocation in the model portfolio. We'll then go into 10 quick, quick fire questions for Andrew to kind of understand the person and, and the product. And then we will uh, start Q&A, which will go for about another 30 minutes. We'll actually talk about companies that uh, Andrew holds bonds in. Um, so why don't I pass over to Drew. Drew, how did we get to uh, having Franklin Templeton's Absolute Return Bond Fund in our model portfolio? Good question, Jamie. I think to answer that question, we kind of have to go back to the beginning, which is that bonds have been probably underinvested in most, in most uh, self-directed or Australian portfolios. Pension funds around the world have probably had something like 30 to 40% in bonds over the last few decades, but most individual investors would be lucky to have 5% at different times. Um, if you to go back to the to the origins, they're pretty simple. They're loans to businesses. There's a big difference between bonds and equities. The, the difference being that interest payments for a bond are legislated and they have to be paid on a quarterly basis, whereas dividends, as we saw this year, are discretionary and when times get tough you you don't pay dividends you keep paying your interest uh, instead and they have to be repaid there's there's three reasons that we've held bonds in the past um, which i'm sure we'll go into more detail on but that's to provide an income uh, so in the form of of the coupon or the uh, the yield uh, to ensure we've got something to sell so when markets when equity markets tend to fall uh, is when bond markets perform well, giving you something to sell to if it's if it's pay the bills rather than selling discounted equities. Uh, and part of that is also smoothing out equity market returns. Um, but I one of the big the big reasons we've we looked for and found Franklin was um, as everyone everyone's seen interest rates around the world are basically zero now. I think just 10 years ago they were something like six and a half percent. 
So you can't get much in the way of income from a bond anymore. Uh, and there's, if the more articles you read, you can actually lose money from uh, on bond investments if interest rates unexpectedly rise in, in the next five or 10 years. Uh, so there's only a few ways that you can protect from these risks. Um, and there's very few strategies available in Australia that do it. Uh, Franklin is one, and by, in our view, they're the best. Uh, so that's why we, we picked Franklin and I, uh, in chat while we're speaking to uh, Andrew today. So uh, welcome, Andrew. And I think Jamie's gonna go with those quick fire questions. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, Jamie. I think uh, w one of the points there, Drew, that you made was a lot of DIY and self-managed super fund investors aren't exposed to bonds. Now, that's because traditional bonds have been in a minimum tranche of half a million dollars. Is that and essentially a wholesale product rather than a retail product. And a bit later, we'll talk about the advent of, of those half a million dollar bonds being um, you know, kind of syndicated and available for smaller investors and the implications of that. But that's one of the reasons why you haven't seen a lot of bonds in self-managed super funds and uh, DIY investors. So now, Andrew, we're going to ask you 10 quick fire questions. We ask for sh short, sharp question uh, answers. Um, but a lot of people do get tied up with their answers. So let's see how we go. This is a stock question. What's the best stock you have personally bought? Well, trust me, you don't want stock tips from me. I was lucky enough to own Fortescue for a small, short period of time. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, name, one, name one belonging from your youth you wish you still had. Not Did you my... buy anything early? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't mine specifically, but I still wish we had my father's old caravan. Yes, that's good. Um, what's the mo what's the personal investment decision you regret most? Probably not buying Bitcoin at the start. Yep. Uh, pineapple on pizza? Definitely. <laughs> uh, you only can hold one stock. Let's say you're going to retire right today and you have to hold the stock for the whole of your retirement or maybe more appropriate, one bond. So you're going to hold one bond for the next 20 years. Um, what bond is it? All your yeah. money, every dollar. It's harder have. than a stock, isn't it? Um, we know less about it, Drew, so you can probably tell us anything. Yeah, I mean, I, that's a really tough one. Uh, one bond. Uh, I don't like portfolios that just have one position in them, so it's it's kind of hard. Stocks, I'd have to refer back to the, the question above. So, Would that revert, of, revert to the strength of the company if you had to pick one? Uh well, just yeah. say pass and pass. pass. <laughs> they were supposed to be easy questions. <laughs> okay, what's the best piece of business business advice you've ever been given? I think just focus on what you can do today and try not to worry too much about tomorrow. Yeah, good one. Best investment for Armageddon, gold, crypto, cash, government bond, or maybe we'll add the Franklin Templeton absolute <laughs> return fund in that. Gold, whether it's Armageddon or not. Um, the best read you would recommend? Yeah, I think the best business investment wisdom you can find is, is probably the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. Yeah, good one. Best region to invest in today, US, Asia, Europe, or Australia? Asia. And the one red flag that turns you off any investment? Uh, lack of financial transparency. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Drew, do you want to continue the conversation? Yeah, I think maybe just a quick introduction on your career, Andrew, and um, why you ended up in as a bond investor rather than I had on here sexier uh, equity markets. <laughs> maybe <laughs> bonds are sexy. I'm not sure. 
I really made the right call uh, not becoming an equity investor. I don't think I would have been great at it. I started my career in, in banking and specifically worked in the corporate credit part of um, that business. Uh, my wife and I spent a fantastic four years in the UK um, and that's where I became really interested in using my skills in the, the investment management side of the, the capital markets. And so that's, that's where it went from. Excellent. And um, I had another question was, what does a typical day of a bond manager look like? You know, we, we kind of see it as boring. You're not watching markets go up and down 3% like Donald Trump's doing at the moment. <laughs> it's really, it's really an interesting question. I mean, there aren't any typical days. Um, I start reasonably early. I think in the current circumstances where we're doing a lot more working from home, there's a, there's a blurring between work and kind of leisure anyway. So you know, I'm up, I'm thinking about events overnight, reading news, I read the papers widely. Um, my team and I, we always have a catch up pretty early. And I actually like to write a, a physical to-do list just to make sure that there's some things that I've got in my head that I, I, I make sure we get through. You know, there's a lot of administration in, in what we do. So it's not all kind of interesting and kind of exciting. This is a lot of detail you need to attend to in terms of bank accounts and moving money around and so forth. And then there's always new deals coming to, to the bond market. So the bond market, a bit different to the equity market, there's always new transactions that are happening pretty much almost every day. So that, that takes up a lot of time as well. So Excellent. That's, that's a good point. Um, versus the stock market where most of our investors would know there's a, you know, there, there's a really liquid, available market that anyone can access that's priced daily, priced every second, really. Is that how the bond market works? If I was going to trade bonds directly, would I have a, a Comsec for bonds or do you have a Reuters for bonds or how does the bond market work versus say a share market that lots of our listeners are really familiar with? So, I mean, the main difference, Jamie, is the bond market is what we call an over-the-counter market. So when investors such as ourselves are looking to buy or sell securities, we, we're not doing it through an exchange. We're basically um, interfacing literally with, with banks and broker dealers to sell or buy our securities from. And so there, there is a market, there are prices that you can, you can view, but those prices are really only indicative because you, you actually need to negotiate directly with another counterparty to, to get something done. Yeah. Okay. So is that, is, does that mean that there's more, um, you, you can execute more skill versus someone that has less knowledge? Is it the person with the most amount of knowledge or the person with the biggest book gets the best deal in that market? Or how does that work? It certainly means that um, particularly outside of government bonds. So in, in parts of the corporate bond market, you need to have um, a lot more focus on where is the liquidity, where are the buyers, where are the sellers, which banks actually have uh, holdings of that bond, which banks are actually interested in buying it. And so there's a lot more art in terms of making sure we get the best prices um, for our clients than, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to downplay the art of transacting in the equity market, but mm. to some degree, it's a bit more simple in terms of you can see the exchange, you can see the buy and the sell. Yep, got it. I think a good place to start, I mean, the biggest differentiating point of Franklin's, of your absolute return fund is the absolute return focus, which is mainly about duration. Um, so if you could provide a bit of a, uh, an intro on duration, why it matters and why you've, you know, your, your career is um, focused on, yep. on this kind of shorter duration. 
Yeah, yeah. So um, shorter. I mean, when we talk about duration in in bond investing, basically, as as people, we think of duration as a measure of time, and that's that's true. Time comes into it, but basically, what we're talking about is the sensitivity of the price of a bond to a change in the level of interest rates. So, for example, if a bond is priced at one hundred dollars and yields in the general market move up or down then that will have an impact on the price of that bond and the degree of that impact is what we call duration so, so essentially a bond has a start date and an end date doesn't it so you yep. buy a five-year bond or a 10-year bond or a 30-year bond so yep. there's time frame and then the sensitivity of the pricing of the bond going up and down um is what you call duration. So that's a kind of a measure of how long it's got to run and how yep. sensitive to market movements it is. Correct. Exactly, Jamie. And if we think about the last few years where in general terms, government bonds have delivered very large returns, that's not been because they had high coupons or high yields. That's because um, the general level of interest rates has come down substantially and they're generally quite long duration instruments. So the combination of being a long duration plus a big move lower in yields has meant the prices have risen. Okay, great. And the buyers term. and sellers are really about, um, you know, protecting from that risk too. That's why there's a lot of active management in the sector. Bonds are kind of thought of as being buy and hold by a lot of people, but they're active parts of, of major portfolios. And that's, and that's kind of the reason why they're yep. buying and selling. You agree with yep. that? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so there's a relevant index in this, like a, a ASX 100 or 200 as well, isn't there? So the, what's the most common um, index that you would compare yourself to? Or if I was an index investor wanting to be really low cost and go and get an ETF off the ASX, what index would that be that you think is a good proxy of what bonds do? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, so Jamie, the, the main index that people think about when they, they look at Australian bonds and think about what is the market doing is the Bloomberg Australian Composite Bond Index. Okay. And that's basically an index comprised of uh, Commonwealth government, state government and corporate bonds issued in Aussie dollars. So that's not the index we measure ourselves against, but that's the main index that the market is um, represented by. So like the ASX 200, it's a combination of the biggest the, well, the, the, the biggest bonds, or if you like, the most amount of debt out. And since there's a bonds have a start date and an end date, is there an average duration of that index that, you know, yeah. dur duration being the right word, I think? Yep. Correct, correct. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that's, you're right, it's a market cap weighted uh, index. So the biggest issuers comprise the biggest uh, percentage of that index. And in this case, it's the Commonwealth government. And after last night, we know that's that's unlikely to change, yeah. um, and the duration of the index, that index. So the the sensitivity of that index performance to a change in bond yields up or down is is now about six years. So six if years. you can compare that to say ten years ago, it was about three point five years. It's not quite doubled, but certainly increased substantially. Was that rule if if interest rates were up to, were to go up by one percent, the the portfolio would be expected to fall by six percent? Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, as a general rule of thumb, um, in terms of change in capital price, duration six years, interest rates rise by 100 basis points, six times 100, 600 basis points of capital loss. Yeah. Hmm. Good one, Drew. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and I thought another part to touch on would be uh, probably a misunderstood term is credit spreads. Um, yeah. And even credit spread duration. It's just another another definition on a definition. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I think maybe relating that to your fund as well. So durate, maybe, yeah, start with credit spreads and I'll have a follow-up question. <laughs> so there's, there's so many dimensions to bond investing. It's kind of what makes it interesting. So we think about a bond that has a yield of say 2% and the, the underlying government bond yield is 1%. And this particular instrument with the same maturity has a 2% yield. Then it has a spread of a hundred basis points over the government bond yield. Um, for a corporate bond, we call that a credit spread. So the additional um, yield increment that you achieve by taking risk outside of the government sector. Yep. And, and so, maybe... so, so the credit duration is similar to interest rate duration. What happens if the spreads change and how does that impact the price of that security? Yeah, and how did um, maybe a, an example of how what happened during March and April in terms of that that credit spread? So what were they before, and what what are they now on? Say, uh, I think if you you got bank bonds in the portfolio, or yeah, yeah, yeah. So investment grade, so the higher quality part of the corporate credit market, credit spreads going into the end of February, say, were quite quite narrow. They were below a hundred basis points um, for an average maturity of five years. So not a lot of additional return. And then the COVID crisis as it moved through in March and April saw those spreads widen by um, more than 250 basis points to, to 350 basis points. Um, so that had a substantial negative short-term capital impact on, on the price of those securities. Um, and of course, a bit like equity markets, we saw a sharp sell-off and now we've seen a, um, a sharp recovery as well. That was just people running for the door. Uh, you know, people just selling to go back to cash. Yeah, so it was definitely people running for the door. A lot of uh, investors globally looking to raise liquidity into cash uh, and just a substantial amount of risk aversion uh, on the part of large players in the market, particularly broker dealers. Yep. I think if we've got a recap, question. Recap again. Um, I, I want to get the basics right. So uh, a, a bond is simply when an organisation and that organisation can be government or semi-government or a company or even like us wants to borrow money. So they would issue a bond and typically that bond, let's say typically, I know every, there's lots of permutations here, but a, typically a bond would be say five years and it would have a coupon attached to it. So I'd say, all right, I'm the organization, let's say I'm the Victorian state government, I need $100 billion, I'm going to issue these bonds. Let's, let's say I just need $100, $100. Um, I'm gonna issue these bonds for 10 years, I'll give you money back in 10 years, and I'll pay you a 5% um, coupon quarterly for that full 10 years. Now that stays the same, the interest rate stays the same for the full period. So when we talk about credit spreads or yields changing, or Drew's got another term here, running yields, the only thing that potentially can change in that 10 year semi-government bond that's got a coupon, set coupon, is the price. Yep. Is that right? Yep. Correct. So, so we're, all, we're talking about price movements when we talk about changes in bond valuations. Correct. That's exactly right. So, I mean, just like an equity, um, bonds have prices. And so, depending on what, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So, you know, once you own a security, um, other 
participants in the market may decide actually it's it's more valuable or less valuable than the price you pay for it. Yep. And then time is ticking because closer you get to that 10 years, the closer you know you'll get the $100 face value back. That's right. And in some ways, um, you know, equities are different, but there are equities that are bond-like as well. And someone once said to me that an equity is basically a perpetual variable coupon, deeply subordinated bond. <laughs> so in other words, it has a very long time horizon or duration, yeah. but a variable coupon because we don't know what the dividend is. Um, and therefore the price is a function of whether people think, you know, it's, it's undervalued or overvalued at a particular point in time based on those factors. So I'm just going to make that point again, that when the company enters and, uh, and has a bond on issue and you own that bond, they're are contractually obligated to pay the interest every quarter. It's not like the board could meet and decide, hey, we're not going to pay our interest this quarter because that'll be a default. They'll go into receivership where when that board meets and they're paying a dividend and maybe they like a bank, they've paid a dividend for the last 25 years. If they're having trouble with their capital management, they can always suspend a dividend. They can't suspend a dividend, uh, a bond payment. So what that means is from an investor, we have a little bit of certainty. First, we have a certainty that it will mature at some point that might be five years, two years, 10 years. And we're certain that the company must pay our payments every quarter or every six months, else they're going to go into receivership. So just wanted to make that point. And I might, maybe I've overemphasized it. But <laughs> I just, uh... <laughs> I think that's a really excellent point. And we've seen a number of high profile examples this year where as a bond investor, you've done really well, but, the equity investor in the same company, it's been a tough year. I mean, we've seen high profile companies, some of the banks, um, Sydney airport, the real estate um, mm -hmm. groups have to dramatically curtail their distributions of the dividends. They've raised equity. They've made decisions that have not necessarily helped their, their stock performance, but from the position of someone who's a lender to the company, it's been a great, um, it's been a great position to be in. And, and as you say, Jamie, in that regard, being a bond investor is actually quite a simple enterprise as long as you make sure you've got the right uh, exposures in your portfolio. Another fund manager pointed this out to me the other day, and it's it's really obvious, but I, it never um, it never ticked with me that if you're if you've got bonds on a company that's listed on a public exchange, they can always raise capital. Now that capital can be it's very unusual for an ASX, well, any stock market company to go bankrupt because their ability to raise capital is there. It might be a deep, deep discounts, right? It might mm. be a 50, 70, 90% discount, but as the bondholder, you don't really care because essentially all you're worried about is the bond, which has got starting value and end value and a coupon. And you're just worried about the solvency of the business. So if they're going to raise money at a 90% discount and you're a coupon holder, all the better, you know, it's, um, which is which is uh, another reason why having, um, you know, looking at if the company's listed or not listed and their access to re recalibrate their balance sheet must be something for you consider, do you, Andrew? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, we've had interesting examples this year in, in for example, the real estate sector. So you look at a company like Vicinity Centres, which has done exactly what you said, um, raised equity, um, because they're a public company, taken some very um, you know, strong decisions to protect their business, 
build a large amount of cash on their balance sheet um, in order to help them navigate the period where, you know, the retail environment's obviously been weaker. And as a bond investor, it's been, it's been like all the Christmases have come at once because actually the, the underlying credit profile or the probability of getting your coupon and principal back in a timely manner from that business um, hasn't changed at all. In fact, it's probably strengthened because of those um, decisions. I think um, one of the big reasons we, we sought out your, your strategy, the absolute return strategy, was the very different position we find ourselves in today compared to say 2010. We were kind of quickly discussing this beforehand. Uh, you're pretty, you're pretty opinionate. You've got some strong opinions on, on the outlook from your fixed income desk updates that come out. Can you give us a bit of a comparison to say 10 years ago and, and today? So yep. government, yep. government settings, what the, the, the ballooning or the growing debt means for, for bond returns um, and, and what risks you see? If you go back to the middle of 2010 and you think about the start of the last decade, and this is where bonds are very different to equities. Um, because the nature of the asset class. So if you, if you look at the Australian 10-year government bond yield 10 years ago, for example, its yield to maturity was, was around 5, 5.6%. It had a duration, which we talked about earlier, about three and a half. Uh, so the index itself had a duration of three and a half years, that is, um, and a yield to maturity of 5.6%. And then we had a 10-year period, you know, that the last decade where Bonds had some good years, they had some bad years as prices moved around, but on average, the annual per annum return for that index was 5.3%. So the return was kind of approximate to the starting yield, but obviously we had ups and downs on the way. Now today, um, the yield on that same index is about 0.75%, um, so not even one fifth of what it was. And that duration or interest rate sensitivity is six years so it's nearly nearly twice so the one thing i can say with absolute confidence is if we having this discussion in 2030 we will not be enjoying the same returns from that index that we have in the last 10 years the only way we will is if you can persuade me that yields um, not just interest rates but yields on bonds are going to go to negative four uh, percent uh, or, or lower and is that I, possible <laughs> I don't think any of us are sitting here saying anything's impossible <laughs> in, in this cool. kind of crazy world we're living in. But aside from, aside from that statement, I would say it's, it's so unlikely and improbable as to be, you know, almost excluded. So in other words, we, we are not going to have anywhere near those returns from just simply putting your money into an index and forgetting about it. That, that, that opportunity is, is now gone. And that's why it is different to, the equity market where there are still genuine growth opportunities to, to make money for your capital. And what are you doing to, what's the absolute return strategy doing to, to not lose money and to actually make money? If so, you kind of taking the view yeah. that interest rates have to be higher uh, in the next 10 years or yeah. maybe the yeah. same, but at least they can't be lower basically. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is where it gets really interesting because we're starting off with very little yield on the table. So optically you look at the asset class and go, Oh my goodness, how am I going to make money? Um, but what we do is we, we start off with, we, we don't start with that index. We start with cash or a neutral uh, position. And then we actually look for opportunities where we see genuine uh, scope to add value.
from a, from a change in price or from you know, an earning stream of a, of a bond. And we look for an outcome from that position over a short, medium time horizon potentially. And when we get that outcome, we, we move on to something else. And so we are not so much of a buy and hold and, and kind of just let it work itself out investor. We, we're quite active. And the good news is even in this environment where, where yields are low, where credit spreads have moved around, there are always good opportunities to identify within that framework um, market securities and, and, and opportunities that, that actually are compelling, even in that, that environment. Yeah, I think maybe there's a question around duration. So your the strategy can be negative duration. Yeah. yeah. Can you explain what that what that means. And yeah, obviously so, if you're long duration and interest rates go up, that's bad. If you're short duration and interest rates go up, that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, yeah do you, I mean, how do you do it? And um, yeah, no, excellent question. So, I mean, so we start off with, with cash or a neutral stance. We don't have any duration in the portfolio uh, and to us duration, in other words, do we want to actively expose our clients to the sensitivity of the bond market to interest rates? Well, that's a function of, our investment process telling us that 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 particular um, outlook is positive. And yes, we want to have some duration in the portfolio, or it could be our investment process saying, actually, no, we think bond yields are going to move higher. We want to be negative duration. We not only want to protect our investors against yields rising, we actually want to make money from it. Now we haven't seen that in the last few years. Um, you know, we've generally seen bond yields kind of doing this, but, given where we are today and the circumstances that are being deployed by governments to battle, you know, the, the, the recessions we're in, you know, we think the next few years, we are more likely to start to see some of those trends emerge. So we've got that flexibility to do that. And people will often say to us, what's your duration in, in your portfolio? And we say, well, it depends right here and now I can, I can give you a figure, but that was probably different from a week ago and it will probably be different from a month ago. So our, our duration changes a lot because we're always looking to adjust our exposure depending on what the market opportunity is and, um, and, and looking for a particular outcome over a, you know, a time frame. Your fund is called the Australian Absolute Return Bond Fund. So it only buys Australian companies debt, is that right? Or does, what, 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 what is your realm? Does it own yeah. government, semi-government and corporates listed and unlisted? all Australian or is there, do you hold other, is that right? Sorry. All of the above. So let me explain. I mean, the, the term Australian is really our way of saying we've designed this for Australian investors okay. and it does have a focus on Australia. So we start with the Australian universe. Absolutely. That universe, again, unlike the equity market is, is very diversified and global. So yes, we've got the Commonwealth government. Yes. We've got state governments, issuing in Australian dollars. But then if you kind of look at the rest, um, you've got this very, very large diverse array of companies and governments who come to Australia, who come to our capital markets and raise money um, because we have a lot of money. We have a lot of money in our super system. We have a very large financial market structure. So outside of our governments, state and federal, and you look at the rest, banks and corporates, more bonds exist in Aussie dollars that are from global issuers than local issuers. Can you give us some examples of 
yeah, globally. issuers of Australian bonds. So, for example, we own some some bonds issued in Aussie dollars by Verizon, which is one of the, the United States' largest integrated telecom providers, kind of like a Telstra of the US, but much bigger. Um, we we have exposure to um, uh, some very high quality financial institutions like. Um, DBS, which is one of the largest Singaporean banks, uh, BNP Paribas, one of the largest European banks, for example. These are all very active issuers in, in the Aussie dollar bond market. Great. And, and uh, go, Drew. That's no, all right. You're fine. We haven't talked about credit ratings yet. I'd like to talk about credit ratings, but does your fund invest in, does it have a combination of um, government or semi-government or corporate? Does it have the ability to go across all? Uh, is there a line, you know, a line in the sand where you want to be? Yeah, so we have the flexibility to invest in both government um, and corporate securities, as well as, um, you know, mortgage-backed securities. We don't have much in that space, it's fair to say. But in terms of government versus corporate, at the moment, we're about a third in government or government-style uh, bonds. Yep. Um, we're about 60% in, in corporate bonds. Um, but within that corporate exposure, we're, we're pretty defensive in our, our kind of stance at this stage. So corporates being, you know, regulated utilities, for example, um, you know, infrastructure borrowers like, you know, APT pipelines. So businesses that are still willing to pay you a higher return because they are a corporate, but the nature of their business is very, very strong, very almost monopolistic in style, for Not example. Cool. Yeah. And let's all, just talk about investment grade. Credit mm. ratings for a minute, yeah. So what a, a lot of our listeners wouldn't understand credit ratings. Um, and through the GFC, they probably didn't really want to know about credit ratings. Um, so how do you... Credit rating is essentially a way to differentiate something that is 100% sure that they're going to pay back your money like a like a government, like an Australian government, and then it goes down from there. So the most secure, I think I'm answering your question, Andrew, the, the most secure being AAA and then AA and A, and then it goes triple B, and all those four categories you call investment grade, don't you? Investment grade, meaning that there's a fair chance you'll get your money back. And then there's a sub-investment grade that goes double BB and then out the back to, to junk. Um, so do you invest on... Do you use credit ratings as a source to um, to make decisions? And you know, where's your fund kind of position within that those categories? Yeah. No, and, so, and correct where I'm wrong with that. Cause, <laughs> no, no, you, you're, you're spot on. I mean, um, all those comments are entirely um, uh, on the mark. So, in other words, the the, the major credit rating agencies, Standard and Poor's, Moody's, uh, and Fitch as well, um, basically assign a rating to both issuers, so in other words, they'll assign a credit rating to Telstra or the Australian Commonwealth Government. Um, and then they'll separately assign a rating to the individual securities that they issue. And the reason they do that is twofold. So for example, if Australia has a, uh, a, a AAA um, rating, it's basically the rating agency saying they have the highest probability in the world of paying back their investors coupon and, and principal. And, you know, if a government issues in its own currency, then really it can't default because it technically can always print the currency to repay its investors. A corporate can't do that. Um, it has to actually earn money to repay uh, its investors. 
So corporates can be AAA, but they typically start to move into AA, single A and triple B in the investment grade space. And as you get lower, um, AA, single A, triple B, basically it's the agency's assessment on a number of dimensions that the, the risks of investing in that are slightly higher. And so, as you mentioned, as you go below triple B into double B, B and triple C and beyond, that's what we call high yield. That's what we call the below investment grade market. And that's where you really start to get genuine default risk um, coming into the picture where it's high yield as the name suggests, but it's high yield for a reason because um, you need to really assess very carefully the, you know, the ability of that issuer to pay you back. So we use ratings. Um, they're quite important. We always make our own independent judgment um, of an issuer in terms of how we feel about their, their credit position rather than just relying on the rating agencies. But we certainly, um, you know, do read their research and, and use them. Is that a source of return as well, where you can see a company being upgraded quicker than the rating agency can? It is. It is. So uh, it's, it's a good question, Drew, because the, the, the bond market does have a bit of a bifurcation between this investment grade and below investment grade category. So a lot of institutional investors globally, um, because of their, their particular investment restrictions, can't buy bonds that are below investment grade. Um, and you know, a lot of specifically focused high yield or below investment grade um, uh, investors don't want to buy above, above high yield as well. So you have this kind of this cutoff. And so what happens is sometimes a company will be triple B and it might move below investment grade. So Ford Motor Company, that happened to them this year. Uh, and so all of a sudden, a lot of investment grade investors had to sell their bonds and a lot of high yield investors, you know, became more interested and vice versa. So sometimes there are interesting investment opportunities in that gray area. So you often find there are good companies that are rated in the high double B area that are in many respects investment grade in their financial strength, their balance sheet strength, but haven't quite managed to get the rating agencies over the line. Um, Fortescue Minerals, I think, is a great example. So it's obviously one of Australia's largest mining companies. Um, iron ore is their focus. Um, you know, they, they have some risks if you consider that they're basically producing one commodity and they don't have a diverse client base, but it's a very, very strong company, very, very um, conservative balance sheet at this stage. And their securities are actually rated in that high double B space. Um, so, you know, from time to time, we have owned selectively positions in that company where you're being paid very, very substantial returns to own a company that kind of looks investment grade, but isn't quite there. And what's your allocation or limits around below investment grade? So that's triple B minus and lower? Yeah, so in below investment grade at this stage, we don't own anything. Um, yep. And that's just a reflection that we, we're more cautious now on, on credit generally. Um, we didn't buy anything through that March, April sell-off because we just felt that, again, the, the opportunities weren't as compelling as an investment grade. Uh, we could potentially have up to 20% exposure in names in that sort of double B category. Um, generally, over time, we wouldn't have had more than 5 or 6%. So we've always got a little bit more bandwidth than we typically have, have worked with. I wasn't sure if we touched on floating and fixed rate bonds earlier as well. Um, yeah. Is there, is there market for both in Australia? Do you, are you using both? 
there is and we are. So it's another yeah. dimension to, to bonds. I mean, there's always so many things going on in bonds. There's fixed rate bonds, floating rate bonds, subordinated, senior. Floating rate bonds don't have the same interest rate duration as a fixed rate bond. So if you buy a five-year security that's got a fixed coupon, then it will fluctuate in price much more because of the sensitivity of the bond to a change in bond yields. If it's the same issuer five years, but it's got a floating rate coupon, then basically it's coupon resets every quarter um, according to uh, the, the short-term interest rates that are prevailing at that time. So it doesn't have the same sensitivity to long-term interest rates, but what it still has is the same five-year sensitivity to a change in credit spreads, for example. And so whilst it can appear to be a more stable security, when you have a period like we experienced in March and April, you can still, you know, you can still see prices fluctuate quite wildly through that period. I'd have a follow-up, uh, maybe it's back to what Jamie alluded to in the beginning, which was groups like FIG uh, and, and Mint that are doing the, uh, what do you call it, syndicating the, the big tranches of loans. Your portfolio holds something like 170 individual bonds yeah. in it. What's, I mean, on the first thing, you can see the difference. Uh, what's the benefit of investing in a more diversified fund compared to, you know, picking the, the deals that are kind of, they feel like IPOs almost. <laughs> we see some of them that come out. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, most of the positions we own, you can't buy as a retail investor. So I think that that's another difference to bond investing and equity investing. You could, you could build an equity portfolio directly, I, I guess. Um, but, you know, in all honesty, if, if I showed you the list of securities we own in the fund and then you, you took that to a, a counterparty, they wouldn't be able to buy them for you um, yeah. because the market just doesn't deliver these securities to retail investors. Um, they, they obviously have minimum size restrictions as well. We own bonds in Aussie dollars. We own some bonds in US dollars where we've hedged the currency. Um, there's a lot of work that the bond market is just quite, quite, challenging actually to, to build portfolios maybe that's a good point to talk about you, you seem to be a um boutique kind of manager but within the structure of franklin templeton and what does that do you, you know we, we've dealt with you a number of times you're very open you talk about your fund um but then there's this big strength of franklin templeton anyone that doesn't know franklin templeton recently bought like mason uh one of the top 10 firms or top 10 firms on assets under management in the world uh, originated out of the us um but your team seems to be very much like Drew and I, in a way, um, you're running your own shop, you're investing your own money. Can you talk about operating a business within more or less yeah. a big business? Yeah, no, no, thanks, Jamie. I mean, that's that's exactly how we think of ourselves. And and Franklin now would openly describe itself as as kind of almost a holding company that that owns a number of specialised investment groups. Um, that it charges with the task of basically building and running the solutions that the investment groups think are right for their clients. And, and what Franklin does is it brings the strengths of a large company in terms of allowing us and therefore our clients to access um, a very large array of, of opportunities. So we can, we can connect with our colleagues overseas in terms of sharing research, et cetera, for example, um, being a manager that now has, I think it's 1.4 trillion US dollars of, of assets totally, 
gives us a lot more negotiating power when we're trying to drive down costs that, you know, you need to do to run a funds business. So, you know, legal compliance, operational costs, all these things, we want to drive those down as hard as we can so we can bring our, 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 our capabilities to our clients and do it at a cost effective level. So that's, that's a really important point, but yeah, we have a lot of autonomy within what we do. So we're part of the big firm. Every decision we make within our, our team based in Australia is our decision. We don't have anyone in California or London saying, you know, here's our investment view. You must put that in your portfolio. Our investment view is basically ours, but we we're connected with, you know, our colleagues with whom we can share ideas and research. And for the listeners, it's a big trend that Drew and I have been talking about and writing an article on is 20 years ago, there was a number of fund manager groups that started and are incredibly successful, you know, come to mind, Platinum and Magellan. And when they first started, they were basically one man shops or two man shops. And, you know, if they needed to get through an investment committee like ours and the due diligence that we put through, they'll never have been, um, that they'll, they'll never get through essentially. So <clears throat> you've seen uh, a lot of professionalism within financial planning, a lot of investment committees, a lot of due diligence, a lot of third parties. So, you know, we favor groups that kind of are nimble enough to manage their own money and have autonomy, but then also have got the governance and compliance and research of a very large group sitting behind them. So. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Drew, maybe, yeah, I had uh, one I think worth discussing was what happened in March. Um, when I was watching it, the volatility in bond markets were, were close to, to equity markets at different times, at least, you know, the 10-year the spread on, on government debt. Uh, so how did, the, how did the fund perform during March? Uh, were there any changes that, that need to be made? And what did the benchmark do as well? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was a really incredible month, wasn't it? It seems so long ago now. Did you so, sleep as well? No, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I mean, nothing, nothing makes me um, happier or sadder, um, I won't say in life, but almost, um, <laughs> than how we're performing. I mean, it, it really is um, one of the, the great joys of being in this part of the business. When things are going well, it just it just is wonderful to sort of feel like, you know, we, we're doing what we want to do. We're helping our clients. It's, it's a great feeling. And when things are tough, um, I would say personally, that's when you learn the best lessons, perhaps not only in investing, but in life when things are really, really difficult. And, and every four or five years, you know, I would say since the GFC, we've, we've had challenging market conditions. This has been the biggest one. Um, if you think about that, between that second and third week of March, which is when COVID-19 went from, you know, gosh, this is a problem to, oh my goodness, this is a real problem. We're gonna to need to sort of curtail economic activity. Government started to shut things down and markets really fell apart. What happened was in the US, um, investor concern became so elevated that there was a wholesale withdrawal of money from the financial markets. So, Treasury or government bond um, mutual funds in the US lost several hundred billion dollars in one week. The cash management um, fund industry in the US, which is very, very substantial, it's a very, very big provider of liquidity to, to companies and banks, uh, lost about 10% of its assets in one week. So you saw money kind of literally or you know, metaphorically going under the mattress. 
and um, and that that kind of was was what really set off the the wild gyrations that that you mentioned, um, Drew. So you know we had gone into that month with with a few things in our mind. Number one, we we still were slightly long duration. We still thought interest rates were falling, but we kind of started to take that position out as the month progressed. And, you know, we were probably a bit early, but, you know, nonetheless, it was still work working for us. Um, and so as government bond yields had navigated a lower path, we, we generally had moved higher in quality, but still stayed investment in, invested in uh, some investment grade credit. So still the same sort of sectors I mentioned, you know, very defensive, but, you know, even those defensive sectors got absolutely, you know, hammered. Um, so, you know, the fund in, in March itself uh, did have a negative return, which was, which was um, disappointing, but not surprising given the, the quantum of, of moves that we had, but it was pretty manageable. And more importantly, we had such a defensive stance. We had a lot of liquidity. We had some cash, we had government bonds. And so as we moved through that period of March into April, and we could see the steps that central banks were taking to ensure that liquidity to the system was provided and things could be, uh, could be navigated. We started to buy some of these bonds that had been beaten up really badly, but had great business models. So I mentioned, you know, names like vicinity centers, coal supermarkets group, um, companies that were almost, I would say COVID proof, but where the returns that you were getting paid to take bond risk were, were incredibly generous. And so we, we shifted a lot of capital into that, opportunity um and then of course you know the last you know few months we've, we've seen that work really well and how many negative monthly returns have you had in your history yeah so um look it's not a big number um I, i'm gonna kind of say 95 percent of monthly returns have been positive yeah um at least but uh, yeah don't quote me on that it's but very it's, not, rare. it's not, a, not a big number and did you get many redemptions in March? Um, I think there's always this misunderstanding of, of managed funds being illiquid and bonds are traded over the counter. So yeah. uh, did you get many redemptions? Were they all met we actually quickly? Had, we actually had some reasonable redemptions, um, mainly because we had some clients who wanted to use that opportunity to buy equities and, and yeah. put some money into other parts of the market. And so, um, and, and that was fine. I mean, we never had you know, any issues in terms of what we were able to deliver. Um, you know, when you're running an open-ended unit trust with daily applications and redemptions, you have to, you have to be able to deliver on that, I think. And so that was a good test for us to be able to do that. So even when markets were volatile, you could still call and sell your Aussie government bonds. Um, yeah. Plus you had some cash available to, yeah. to pay that yeah. as well. Back to that point about March, Andrew, uh, and we saw this in uh, the last quarter of 2018, 2018, markets seem to react when they react at the moment. Um, and it's probably different than your career over your career, but at the moment it seems to be d deeper cuts. Well, I say deeper cuts and heal quicker. So it seems to be markets fall off very, very quickly. I think uh, March was one of the quickest fall offs we had. Um, you know, the last quarter of 2018 would be one of the quickest as well. But the recovery was even quicker. And you go from a portfolio manager's perspective, that must be incredibly hard. It must put a lot more pressure on you. It puts a lot more pressure on us because the decisions can't be deferred. We couldn't, and we, we did some 
good changes in our portfolios for our clients, mm. but you couldn't defer it. Like you can't say, Hey, I'll defer it to the next investment committee because yeah. by the time you defer it to the next investment committee, the whole, you know, effectively the cut is healed up and that opportunity is gone. Yeah. So do you, do you guys, is that just us feeling like that? Or is that how you guys feel too? That, um, that markets do have the propensity to fall off quickly and recover quickly? No, I think that's exactly, exactly right, Jamie. And that's why certainly the way we manage money and, you know, I would, I would um, argue it's, it's an important attribute to have in your broader portfolio is at least have managers who can react really quickly, people acting on your behalf, because you don't, you don't get the, the luxury of waiting for the next, um, you know, investment committee cycle or whatever it is. Um, I am surprised. We were surprised how, how quickly markets bought the recovery before the recovery was kind of, you know, such as it is um, realized. But I think that speaks to just the fact that markets are very forward looking. You know, they're always thinking, well, not what is the circumstance today, but where are we going to be in 12, 18 months time? So, so that's a good point. Have markets priced <laughs> in a, a cure for Corona? The budget has. The budget well, has. I think well, well, I, the budget's repairing the damage before it's even over. Fun you would have to say that the markets are at least 80% now assuming we have some sort of vaccine breakthrough as we move into 2021. Um, and look, in terms of our research and, you know, our, our internal discussions, that's probably not unreasonable. Um, so yeah, it, it then becomes a question of, well, what does well in this kind of recovery phase that, that hasn't quite performed and, you know, what are the opportunities even allowing for the fact we've had a big, a big move generally up. We just had another question about Franklin Templeton and in our core portfolio, we actually have two investments that are Franklin Templeton. So we have your fund, which sits in the fixed income or the alternative defensive alternative portion. So the defensive portion of uh, clients portfolio. And then we have a, in the growth allocation, um, which covers uh, Australian stocks, international stocks, and something which is called um, growth alternatives. We have the global growth fund run by um, Huber, Donald, Don Huber. Don Huber and Francine out of Sydney. Excellent mm. fund. Um, it basically invests into shares in the mid cap market. Very similar to what you're doing here. He's running a group out of New York, obviously one person in Sydney that is essentially managing money um, within the big structure of Franklin Templeton, but it's his team that is managing money. Um, so we've just had a question about are they, you know, how do the two groups work together? Obviously one, one more or less parent, Franklin Templeton, and all the resources like research and governance and marketing. And then you've got your own group that operates within that um, and similar to he operates within that. Do you have any contact? I mean, I assume the portfolio has no overlap at all between the two. And do you have any contact with Donald or he's another portfolio manager sitting under the banner of Franklin Templeton in New York? Yeah, we don't have any formal um, contact in terms of, you know, a regular meeting where we share ideas or anything like that. We're operating quite independently. Mm. Um, I'm actually very good friends with Francine, who's based in Sydney. Um, so we, we talk about everything from politics to to markets, just, just ad hoc. So we, we have contact as we do with other investment teams, um, but we are quite, quite distinct um, in terms of our process and, you know, approach and, and holdings, et cetera. They're a phenomenal team. 
Yeah, they've done so, so well over a period of time where if you weren't exposed to a handful of stocks, you had no performance at all. And they weren't exposed, but their performance is exceptional. So. Yeah, yeah, no, they've done really well. Okay, maybe you... a quick finish on uh, what you're looking forward to or worried about for 2021. Well, let me tell you, let, not let me twenty. We're almost finished. Let me start with what I'm looking forward to, which is basically getting out of my home um, <laughs> and getting out of this 5k radius that they've got us stuck in, <laughs> and seeing my kids back to school. Um, you know, I mean, I think so many things that we 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 take for granted just in terms of normal life. Um, you know, all of a sudden you don't have those things, and you go, "Oh my goodness, I just want to, I just want to go for a drive to the country or whatever it is." So. <laughs> that's my, uh, <laughs> it's so true my um my dog just ran into the room with my daughter's favorite toy ripped to shreds and then uh, the daughter ran in with tears so oh. <laughs> <laughs> we all need to get out we need to get, there's, there's not many teddies left so. so i think i think that's the easy one and i think um look in terms of the outlook from here barring you know, a big setup, a, a big setback in terms of the medical progress that's being made on COVID. I think, I think 2021, you know, we've got more cause for optimism in terms of the economic recovery in Australia and, and globally, which is great. Um, you know, I think the, the US election is going to be far more uh, uncertain and volatile than what people might think. Um, so I know markets are starting to think more conclusively about a Joe Biden victory, I wouldn't be so sure necessarily, but you know, there's a long time to go. Um, so I think 2021 is going to be interesting, hopefully less eventful than, than 2020. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's cause for optimism, I think, on a number of fronts. Excellent. Yeah, we might, might leave it there. Um, thanks, Andrew, for your time this morning. Really appreciate uh, the, the candid answers and helping us uh, explain bonds a little bit more to our clients. If anyone has any questions further to what they've asked, are you happy to answer them if we send them over to you? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm yeah, more than happy to answer any questions people have. So, you know, it's been a, a real pleasure and I really, you know, really enjoyed the conversation. And, and thank you, Drew and Jamie, for, yeah, for having me on. Yeah, no Thanks. problem at all. All right, so that can includes another Market Thinkers uh, uh, interview. Um, join us next week, same time. Um, thanks, Drew. Thanks, Andrew. Thank thanks, you. everyone. Have a great day. Thank you.